So please open God's word with me to first Peter chapter one. We'll begin reading in a few moments at verse one. Before I I read the text, though, I want to share a quote with you by C.H. Spurgeon. And I think it'll help frame up what I want to address this morning from this passage of Scripture. So as you're turning there, I'll read this to you. Spurgeon wrote this. It is a very blessed thing to be on the watch for Christ. It is a blessing to us now. How it detaches you from the world. You can be poor without murmuring. You can be rich without worldliness. You can be sick without sorrowing. You can be healthy without presumption. If you're always waiting for Christ's coming, untold blessings are wrapped up in that glorious hope. Every man that has this hope in himself purifies himself, even as he is pure. Blessings are heaped upon one another in that state of heart in which a man is always looking for his Lord. Here's a question for you this morning. Is your state of heart always anticipating Christ's return? The day you will see him face to face, the day you will be in his presence, not just spiritually, but physically. And I have to confess to you as I look at this this morning with you, I don't think on this enough. I don't ponder this enough. According to what I read here in First Peter 1, 1 to 16. So let's let's read that text together to begin our time of worship. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis, the full disclosure of Christ's glory. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is an amazing portion of Scripture, and what an amazing incentive for holiness that we see in verse 13. That's what I want us to zoom in on this morning. I want us to look at verse 13 because there's a transitional word that's placed there by the Holy Spirit for our edification. 
As, as Peter is writing under the Spirit's direction here, he's writing to suffering and weary saints, these exiles who are scattered throughout this region. But he's, he's taking them in the first few verses that we read there, 1 to 12, and he's moving them from comforting them to then commanding them to respond in light of this great comfort in verse 13. He's, he's calling them to respond to God's gracious revelation that is found in Christ in those portions of Scripture before verse 13. In, in verses 1 to 3, Peter indicates how God calls sinners to salvation. He does it by his sovereign grace. He indicates that to us there. And he does it by setting them apart through the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and by washing us in the blood of God, the Son. And in verses 4 to 9, Peter then indicates that suffering saints will be protected by the power of God, not just in the future, but now presently. Their salvation is guarded, garrisoned, kept by God. And then in verses 10 to 12, Peter goes on to indicate one more thing. He indicates that, that God's eternal plan of salvation, it came to us prophetically, scripturally, from, from God, according to the scriptures. And according to the scriptures, this salvation came to us by grace through faith in what God would provide to save his people from their sins. The greatest sacrifice of all would be his own son. So in verses 1 to 12, we see indications of something. And in verse 13, we see an imperative about something. Verses 1 to 12 indicate what God has done for us by his grace. And then verse 13, we are commanded to do something in response to this grace. Here, Peter is moving us from a fancy word called the indicative to the imperative. What's indicated about what God has done for us is there in 1 to 12. What God now wants us to do is in verse 13 through 16. Based on what Jesus did, what God the Father did, what God the Son and the Spirit did together, here's what you should do in response to your great Savior. These commands come after he reveals these truths about what God himself has accomplished for us. This is the way it should work in the Christian life. The more you ponder the work and the grace of God, the more you want to respond out of obedience and out of joy for the one who has called you to be his ambassadors, to be his witnesses, to be his people. You want to be honoring to him. And that's what he's getting at here in 13 to 16. But mainly we're going to look at verse 13. In verse 13, Peter commands, he commands us to prepare our minds, number one. Prepare our minds for immediate action. That's what he's going to say. And secondly, Peter commands us to fix our hope on God's full revelation. Prepare your minds in light of what's been done for you in God's grace through Christ. Prepare your minds for that so you can act upon what you have revealed to you. And then fix your hope that what God has done in the past, he's going to complete in the future. At the full disclosure of Jesus Christ when he comes again. His full revelation. In 13a, the Lord commands us through Peter to, number one, prepare our minds for immediate action to bring Christ exaltation. The summary of what he's doing there. Prepare your minds for immediate action in order to bring Christ praise, exaltation. He says it real simply. Prepare your minds for action. The old King James is gird up the loins of your mind, Right. It means bind up or gather up your thoughts. Now, don't make it super spiritual. This is pretty just straightforward and biblical. In light of what's been revealed to you, verse by verse, down to verse 13, put this together. Put these things in order that has been revealed to you about God's grace in Christ. Think biblically is what he's saying. Bind up your thoughts. Put them in order. Think biblically. Think logically. Think theologically. Based on what God has done to save us, now respond like this. Live like what he has called us to is going to be a reality in the future because it will be. He is holy. He has called us to be holy. He has imputed the righteousness of Christ to make us holy in his sight. So live like it. 
Let the glorious truth of God's grace transform the practical aspects of your life. That's what he's saying. Put these things in order. Think biblically about these things. When he uses this term, bind up or gird up the loins of your mind, he's talking about how man would quickly gather up his loose ends of his robe in this time period. And he'd gather them up with a cinched belt when he was in a hurry to prepare himself to go to work or go to action or go to battle. This was an oriental tradition. This is also a Hebrew tradition. It was from the Passover that we see this actually illustrated to us. The Israelites, when they ate the Passover meal, they would they would take their loose outer garments and they would gird themselves up about their waist with this girdle, this belt. They would wrap it around them and they'd be ready for the flight out of Egypt when God called them. The Israelites were commanded to be always prepared for this. Be prepared. Keep remembering this. Be prepared. Be prepared mentally for action. Be prepared to move when God's grace comes to you. They were to remember that they were aliens in a land of slavery. And they were to fix their hope on the one who would bring them out of slavery and into the promised land. And and that's what Peter's trying to convey here. Remember, like the Israelites... We are God's people now. We are to be prepared now not to flee Egypt, but to flee sin. To be prepared in our minds to think about what God has done for us and then see sin as utterly sinful from God's perspective. We need to be prepared to flee from sin and focus on what God has already promised to do in Christ. That is to deliver us. He has brought that deliverance to us. He has made us complete in Christ. But the full revelation of that completion won't come until Christ himself comes in full glory in the future. We still carry around the remaining elements of sin in our flesh. But on that day, we will be made like our Savior. We will be transformed. So live like you're going to be transformed. Prepare your minds Think about your life in light of this truth and live differently in light of what's coming to you in the future by God's grace. We can't do that, though, if we're not really focusing on these realities biblically. If we're not tying up or girding up all of our thoughts daily, we will be distracted in our service to God, in our service and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we begin to think that life just revolves around us, And not around Christ. We will even drown what we thought was a passion for Christ in the mundane of our daily life. We can easily be swayed and drifting into the mundane and the trivial. when we don't fix our minds on the eternal. We don't fix our minds on what Christ is going to do one day. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back in full glory. He's not coming back to judge those who are in him, that are united to him by faith. He's coming back to reward and receive all those that he has purchased with his own blood. How does that make us want to live today? There are lots of things that we enjoy doing today that are not bad. They're not evil. They're not sinful. But an inordinate amount of focus on them and not on Christ at the center can even cause things to become sinful. A distraction. We want them too much instead of wanting what is eternal in Christ. The peace that God has given us in Christ should transcend and move us into this peace that we have in this world that doesn't make us want to lust after everything that the world lusts after. We spend a lot of time, like Peter, when he was with Jesus, when Jesus tells them that the Son of Man must be offered up and sacrificed and put to death, Peter says, no, no, Jesus, that ain't happening. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to keep this from happening because this isn't right. And then Jesus comes back with, get behind me, Satan. You're looking after the things of the world, not the things of God. And sometimes we can do that. We can look at the things of the world and think, you know, this is just our home. Well, folks, we're aliens. We're passing through Christ, the king. He's coming to bring us home. But in the meantime, we can spend a lot of time focusing on our careers, our relationships, our comfort, our retirement, our possessions, our health. 
all good things in the right order. If we don't let them distract us from keeping Christ at the center of all that we think about and dwell on. I mean, wouldn't it change the way you live? Wouldn't it change the way you operate at your workplace if you thought Christ is coming at any moment? And I want to be about his business. I want to be honoring him with my life. Wouldn't that transform the mundane? Even when you're sitting and doing dishes, which I don't do. My wife does that. I should do that. When you're mowing the lawn, I can say I do that. And I think this is the biggest waste of time in the world. It's insane. God caused grass to grow and it should just be let natural. I like that. It looks right to me. But instead, we try to kill it and cut it down and... And I think this is the waste of time. But but what I find in God's grace at times, not always, most of the time I'm complaining for the first hour. At times, though, there becomes this time of prayer. There's nothing else to do while you're mowing. You, you pray and, and as you're thinking, and as you're pondering, I mean, you guys come to my mind, you come to my heart and I begin to intercede and I begin to call out to God, seek his help. I want to be like that all the time. It changes my mowing, changes your dishwashing. You begin to see this as not a distraction, but something that you can use to bring glory to God. I want you to think about something. Think, think about this. What, what do you really think is most important to focus on? Your career or the coming of Jesus? Your education or the coming of Jesus. With the coming of Jesus means we need to be busy about his business. If he's coming and we believe he is, then we need to be living actively as his servants here now in the presence. Honoring him, glorifying him, witnessing to the lost. That would change the way we look at our pursuits, the things we focus on. Because when he comes, as I said, he's going to come and he's going to, it's, it's an irony to me. We're saved by grace, we're kept by grace, we're brought home by grace, and we're going to receive rewards by grace. He earned it all. And yet we are given rewards when he comes. And shouldn't that change the way we live in light of his promised blessings? Listen to what Jonathan Edwards resolved to think and focus his mind on when he was 17 years old. There's a long list of resolutions that he made. I'm just going to read two. Just the depth of thought in the 17-year-old's mind should bring conviction to everybody in the room unless you're under 17. Resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. That could only produce good. Wouldn't that change us for the good if we thought like that? If we resolve to think like this, whatever I'm doing at any moment of any day, I want to be doing it when Jesus comes. Will that change and transform and sanctify your actions, your thinking? Your internet use, your conversations, your entertainment. Imagine how differently you would live if you thought that Jesus is coming. You know, we say this. We say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We believe he's coming. We confess that. It's in our statement. It's in the LBCF. It's all these things that we hold dear to us. Yet, do we live like he is coming and he is the king who is coming to reward his people? Do we live like that? I don't. And I need to. I believe and confess. He is coming and he's coming with great might and glory. And he's coming to receive and reward all those who belong to him. And I'm getting a reward at that time. I believe that. I confess that. But I want to live in light of that. Edwards took his resolutions and Christ's second coming seriously. Let me tell you why. Go back to First uh, Peter, if, you're, if you've turned away from there. First Peter 1.13. He took it seriously because Peter, through the Holy Spirit's empowerment, tells us to take it seriously. When Peter tells us to, 
to prepare our minds. He goes on and gives us a simultaneous command here, not just to prepare our minds for action, but also to be sober minded. Now, he's kind of moving away from the Israelite tradition at the Passover to more military terms here. He's saying, have a mind that is prepared for battle. Okay, be sober in your thinking about this, this calling that God has placed on your life in Christ. Be sober, be be self-controlled. Be clear minded, be ready for action like a soldier that's going to go into battle. See, The Roman soldiers, when they when they geared up for battle, they girded up their loins for action. They didn't come into the, if you will, locker room and say, hey, guys, did you hear the one about so and so the other day? Let's tell some jokes. Let's cut up. Let's have a good time. Now we're just going to go out and probably get our, you know, bodies slashed to pieces and possibly mutilated and put to on a stake. Now, when, when they girded their loins up for action, they were sober in spirit. They were going out into a life or death battle. And that's the language that Peter's using here. You better be sober in spirit. Be, be sober in your thinking. Be self-controlled. Be clear-minded about what God's calling you to do. You're to be holy in a world that is unholy. You'll be perceived as an enemy when you speak the truth in love about sin. You better be prepared. Church, if, if we want to honor Jesus, our Savior, and our King, we need to take that calling to be sober, to be serious regarding holiness and sin. We need to take it seriously. We need to take our calling to be sober about being called by God to be his holy instruments here on earth to reveal the glory of Christ, not just now, but in the future. We want to honor Christ, don't we, as our king. We want to do it presently, not just when he comes in the future at the great eschaton at the end. We want to honor our king presently as well as the day that he returns. But if we're going to do that. We need to be more serious about our calling to be holy there in verse 16. We are commanded by God. This is not a indicative. This is an imperative We're commanded by the sovereign God of the universe, creator and sustainer of all things, Lord and Savior, to be sober about his business, to stand firm in the truth, to battle against sin for Christ's sake. You see, his his indicatives are moving us to the imperative to turn away from sin. That's what he's saying. Look, it's going to happen one day. The full revelation of Jesus will be manifest. You will see him in his glory. You'll be received and rewarded by him. In light of all that, shouldn't you want to live holy lives that will honor your king when he comes? He wants us to see this, I think, in light of what Christ has done. Did not Jesus gird his loins for battle? Did not Jesus have a sober mind when it came to the cross and his mission on earth? Christ's blood was shed. Christ girded up his loins and was sober in his battle to conquer sin for us. Should not we be likewise? Should not we be like our Savior and our King? When it comes to looking at sin and see it as utterly sinful. Oftentimes we excuse it. Oh, we're just human. Tis true. But the holy God of the universe dwells in you. His spirit empowers you. His son died for you. He redeemed you with his own blood. Yes, you're in the flesh. Yes, we struggle with sin, but it is not an excuse. We are called to be holy for he is holy. And he has given us his power and his grace to pursue holiness. And one day that holiness will be revealed when Christ comes. And the sin that we battle with will be fully conquered by Jesus. Therefore, we should take God's gift of salvation And Christ's second coming seriously. It'll be a serious day when he comes for the world. It'll be a fearful day for the world when Christ comes. It'll be a wonderful day for the believer. But when he comes again, he will come in seriousness. 
He will be sober. He will be somber, if you will. He is going to come again, but he is not going to look like he did when he came the first time. He is not going to be a baby wrapped in a swaddling cloth. He is going to be a warrior. He is coming to destroy the enemies and rescue his people when he comes. He's going to be arrayed in battle gear. The sword of his mouth will slay the enemies. He'll give rewards to his people. He'll judge rebels. He'll rescue his own. Look with me at Matthew to see this. Matthew 24. This is the one that we are called to be sober about. The one that we're to have a sober mind, serious mindset upon. This is the one who is coming again. And this is what he will do. 42, 24, 42. Therefore, stay awake. For do you not know on what day your Lord is coming? But know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the pretenders, the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of Teeth. This is our Lord's illustration of his second coming, his judgment to come on those who are unfaithful to him. And church, listen. A lot of times I think we fall into 48 and 49. Ah, the Lord's delayed his coming so long. Let's just eat and drink and be merry. And we we waste hour upon hour, year upon year of our lives. And when he comes, by his grace, we'll be with him. But you better make sure that you're longing for it. If there is no longing, if there is no turning from sin in this, there is no repentance in your heart even this morning over the wasted time that you've spent. You may be in the category of 50 to 51 of the unbeliever who will be cut to pieces at the coming of our Savior and their judge. Look with me at another picture of him coming in Revelation 19. And I recognize, and I really hope you feel it, when Paul, or Peter rather, tells us to be sober-minded and we look at these revelations of Jesus Christ, we, we should sound sober-minded. We should, we should be sober-minded. This should be a sober moment for us because this is not some poor, weak, anemic Savior, this is the mighty warrior, the king of kings, the Lord of glory. And we should live in light of his revelation here. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is Jesus being spoken of. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns, many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Church, listen. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, listen. This is going to be a frightening day on this planet when this happens for the unbeliever. 
The judge is coming. The one you thought you could escape in this life. He is not going to be able to be escaped from. He is coming himself or you're going one or the other. He's coming, though. When he comes, he's going to come with power and authority to bring a rod of correction, a rod of judgment. It's a frightful thought. If you're not a believer to look at this day for us as Christians, it's a day of joy. We anticipate the vindication of our Lord. We anticipate the full display of his glory, but our heart breaks for those who are lost. And if it's a frightening day to you, if it's a frightening thought to think about Christ coming again, I want you to know today it doesn't have to be a frightening thing. Because this great king and this great warrior that's coming, he's also a great savior, a loving redeemer. But you must turn from your selfishness, your love, your lust and your sin. And you must believe in his revelation, trust in his revelation of who he is, what he did and why he is coming again to reveal his glory through his work of redemption, redemption that will be completed on the day he returns to display his glory. Turn from sin, trust in him or this day will be beyond frightening. No one can withstand his hand. No one can stop him in his judgments. So ask yourself this morning, are you prepared for that day? That day is coming more assuredly than your next breath. Okay? This is God's word. It's coming. You can't even guarantee your next heartbeat, but this is guaranteed. This will happen. And in light of that, as Christians... You've got to ask yourself, how often do I ponder this? Do I take it seriously? Do I, do I shape my life based on this revelation? Am I actually responding to the command in 1 Peter 1.13? Am I actually listening to his revelation and responding with the pursuit of holiness? Because the final revelation is coming in Christ. Have you prayed for Christ's return lately? Have you really stopped and just prayed, Jesus, come quickly, come quickly, Lord Jesus, not for me just to escape this suffering and sorrow on this planet, but come quickly to reveal your glory, to display your might and to vindicate yourself and to bring justice to this earth, to stop sin in its tracks. The victory he won at the cross will be displayed in full glory when he comes again in his power and authority on the last day. Are you praying for it? It seems like we don't do that much. We don't think about it much. It seems like we don't think about it much because it seems like that we live with the pursuit of pleasure more than the pursuit of God in our culture. Maybe it's just an American thing, but it seems to me like that we don't need Jesus to come right now because I got a cell phone, I got a car, I got air conditioning, I got food, I got a little bit of heaven right here on earth. And I like it. It satisfies my physical needs, my physical desires. So I'm really not thinking about Jesus coming. But let me tell you this if you lived in another country, a country under persecution, a country that would cost you your life just to come to this building and gather with us. I guarantee you their perspective and the way they live is changed in light of this glorious revelation. Right now, by God's grace, we have a lot of freedom and pleasures here. But that could all be taken away in a heartbeat. You better hope your heart is fixed upon Christ. And that you want him more than you want anything else in this life. You want his glory to be revealed through your life. Just think about what your witness would look like if you lived like that. If you lived in constant anticipation of Christ's second coming, how would your life be changed? Would your life be different? Would your actions be different? Would your interaction between others be different if you really believed in this hour that we're now spending together, Jesus could come? Would it make you want to be more in tune with his word? More compassionate toward the lost? More active in your love for others? Maybe some of our trivial pursuits in life would fade away if we thought more like this. You know, a lot of you guys talk about struggles with all kinds of things, and we all have them. You know, wasting time on this, wasting time on that, pursuing the wrong things, and you're, you're frustrated by it. Well, maybe, 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 just maybe, if you changed your thinking 
If you prepared your minds, if you girded up your minds, if you thought soberly about the revelation that is to come in Christ, maybe those trivial pursuits would fade and diminish. Maybe maybe you're trying to, to straighten out the life before you rest in the life that's promised. And you need to rest in the life that's promised. And that will produce spiritual labors that will take the place of the trivial pursuits of life. If you look at what God has done for you, you can enjoy life. You can enjoy everything in light of his coming. But you also put it in the right order. It doesn't come first. My pleasure doesn't come first. My passions don't come first. Christ's pleasure, Christ's passion, that comes first. Because I want to be about his business when he comes again. Not because I I think that that will bring me salvation. It will not. But in response to the great salvation I've been given, I want to honor my Redeemer. I want to honor the one who rescued me by his grace, through his own blood, through his sacrifice. Maybe we need to think about this more seriously. Maybe we need to think about the coming of Christ more seriously if we truly want to say that we're people who honor Christ as our Savior. He is our Lord, our master as well. And we are to obey his commands, the commands that we're given there in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. Let's look at that again. Secondly, we are being commanded here by God to prepare our minds for action by, by doing something particular, by fixing our hope on God's revelation of his grace in Christ. There in 13b, Peter commands us to I'll read it to you. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the apocalypsis, the full revelation of Christ in his glory when he comes again. Set your hope fully on the unmerited favor that it's still coming. It's future grace. We have grace now. This is future. Look at look at this. Set your assurance upon this. There's more to come in Christ. At the full revelation of Jesus, you'll see the completion of your salvation. And the hope he's talking about here is is a confident expectation. It's not a wish. It's assurance. It's an assurance because that hope is in a gracious God. God's gracious election is what is the foundation of our hope here. God's gracious Election is what brought us to salvation. That's what secured it in the past. That's what secures it in the present. That's what will secure it in the future. And here, God's gracious work is revealed to us in Christ. The one who is coming to say, I'm going to bring the fullness when I come. Everything that's promised to you that we still have not received, which is a new body, the eradication of sin, that's coming with Jesus. The promised completion of our salvation will be seen when Jesus comes at his return. That's good news. I'm ready. I'm tired of this body of death. I'm tired of seeing people suffer under sin. I'm like, I wish I was like more like Jesus in the sense that when he cried at Lazarus's tomb, he's broken hearted over the, the sorrow that they're they're suffering, that his sisters are suffering there. But he's also sorrowing over the results of sin on this planet that brings death. I wish I was more like that. We can be by God's grace as we think about Christ's coming. I'm looking forward to that day. And Peter's saying here, based on all these truths that I've, I've given you about this future salvation, this coming fullness of salvation that will be revealed in Christ, based on that, therefore... You ought to have your minds fixed on this great truth to come. Based on all that's been done in verses 1 to 12, we ought to have our minds fixed on the eschatological promise of our final salvation in Christ, which will be fully experienced. It's not just by faith. It'll be by sight when Christ returns to claim his victory, to bring justice to the world and to be glorified through his people. You can see that in Second Thessalonians. Go there with me. You see this take place in Second Thessalonians chapter one and verse five. 
This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. The fullness of our salvation will be manifest when Christ returns. The world will see it. His fiery judgment will fall upon them because they are attacking his people, his bride, his body. He will bring judgment upon them. He'll protect us. And he'll reward us. He'll be glorified through us. Isn't that astounding to think about? Jesus's greatness will be magnified through our redemption and through his consummation of all things. Coming back to this planet to say, that's my bride. Stop what you're doing. I'll show you who I am, the one they have professed to you, the one they have shown to you. I am here now to show you myself that these people belong to me and this is the fullness of my gift to them. I am going to be with them face to face. That's the day that Peter's talking about in First Peter 1.13 when he commands us to focus our minds on all that God has promised us in Christ. And as I said, that includes a resurrected and glorified, transformed body, transformed for Christ's glory and for his eternal praise. You know, we we could not stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Even Isaiah in Isaiah six, when he is this vision, this has this vision of God on his throne. He falls down on his face at the threshold as it is trembling and saying, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. I'm undone. That's what he's saying. But when Christ comes in the fullness of our salvation and he gives us a new body, a resurrected body, reconstituted body without sin, it's created for glory. Not just to be in glory, but to reflect glory perfectly without the flaw of sin. Church, that is true and that is coming. And the amazing part to me in that is it's not like God just said, I'm going to give them new bodies And so we'll just zap them with new bodies. No, the Lord Jesus Christ comes himself to do this. Showing us his great love for us, his condescension, even in that. But I think it's his love that's magnified in it. He's coming to say, I'm bringing it all. Church, you're going to be made whole. The fullness of my promises are going to be brought to you by myself. Look at Philippians. Philippians 3. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my Beloved, is that not great incentive to stand firm in the Lord? He's coming. He's coming to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Because he is the sovereign one and the savior of sinners. And he is magnified through this act of glory. That's the end or the telos or the purposed result and purpose for God's sovereign grace in the first place is to bring him glory. We're created for his glory, for magnifying his greatness. And one day we'll be able to because we'll be made like Christ, able to stand in his presence. I'm sure full of awe, but not disintegrating. Created to be in full fellowship with him without fear of rejection. That's that's both a present sanctifying hope and a eternal securing hope, is it not? 
I have no fear because I'm in Christ. And one day what I struggle with even now will be eradicated. When Christ is revealed in his full glory, we'll be made like our Lord and our Savior. That's good news. All this sin gone by the transforming act of grace that he brings when he comes. We'll experience fellowship with him face to face. Face to face with Jesus. We have full fellowship with him now by faith, but one day we'll have it by sight. One day we'll be able to be in his sight and know that we are accepted, know that we are loved, know that we are protected, know that we are made to be his forever because he has transformed our lowly bodies to reflect his glory. Colossians 3, Colossians 3, 2. I'll show you how this will affect you practically here. Peter has told us to sit or prepare our minds for action, fix our hope on this full revelation here. Verse 2, chapter 3, it says, set your minds, right? Set your mind, that's your thinking, right? On things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Why, Paul? Why should we do that? What's the purpose? What's the point? Well, he gives us the purpose in verse 3. Here's why. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Wow, that's amazing. Wait a minute. You mean I don't have to worry? I don't have to fret? I don't have to be stressed out? I don't have to fight? I can rest in Christ? My salvation is secured by him, not by my works? Yeah. Why? Because I was with him at the cross. My sins were imputed to Jesus. His righteousness is imputed to me by God's grace for ultimately God's praise. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in doxa, glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Indicatives, two through four. Imperative, verse five. In light of this great truth that we see in these first few verses, here's what you do. Listen, if you try to put to death sin without first rejoicing and resting in the indicatives, you'll be a legalist. But if you rest and rejoice in the indicatives, you're going to come to the imperatives and you're going to say, glory to God, I want this. I want to pursue this with all my heart. I want to fix my hope on this. See, see here in even this passage, like in Peter, if you set your mind on the already but not yet. It will change the immediate pattern of your life already. I'm in Christ. Have I received the fullness of that? Not yet. But when I set my mind on that, it's going to change the way I walk. It's going to change the pattern of my life. In first Peter one thirteen, that's what Paul's trying to help us do. In this revelation, he's commanding us to fix our hope completely on this future grace that's going to come to us in Christ. He does that because he knows it will cultivate joy driven sanctification in us, not just in the future, which is going to be completed, but now presently. Peter's taken us through these gracious indicatives to this God honoring imperative that we see here to show us how we should respond today To what God has done for us by his grace in the past in Christ Jesus. What has he done? Here's what he's done. In Christ, he has secured our eternal joy of honoring Jesus when he returns. That is my hope. The hope of heaven isn't the city. It's the builder of the city. It's Jesus. And to live a life now and in the future that's promised to us that will bring him honor and praise Forever, there is no greater desire for the Christian. There should be no greater hope. It's an assurance. It's ours. It's promised. Live like it's been promised. Live like it's a guarantee. He's already paid the debt. He secured the future. He's promised us all that we need will come through his work. Rest in that. Pray that we would live in light of that hope. 
as we're commanded both here and in one more passage, and I'll conclude. Pray we live in light of the hope that's here and in first or second Peter, second Peter three. This is an important passage to read, I think, in light of all these things, to keep our minds focused and to keep us hoping in the promises of the future. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord, when Christ comes, will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to. To his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent. Fix your hope on this. Prepare your minds. Be diligent. To be found by him today without spot or blemish and at peace. Pursue his glory, pursue his will, and rest in knowing that it's going to come in its fullness when he returns to receive us to himself. But in the meantime, live as God's holy people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to these revelations of what you promise us in the future. And we don't always feel the promise. We, like the unfaithful servant, we think that you are delaying at times, that it may not happen in our lifetime, that it, it may not be something that we ever see. But, Lord, we know this. That promise will come either when Christ returns or when we come to meet you. And that is a guarantee either way. And God, we pray that in light of this revelation, in in spite of our weakness and our flesh, and in spite of our struggles with sin and our distractions, we pray that you would cause our minds as we biblically cultivate truth to put things in the right order and to submit to the revelation when we don't feel the passion to submit to the hope with joy that will move us away from sin and rest in the promises to come in Christ, that full salvation yet to be revealed on the last day when he returns. Lord, make us long for heaven. Give us a hunger for heaven that's greater than any hunger we have for anything on this earth. Lord, please forgive us for our wasted time. And we have so much. I have so much of that. Lord, I pray that you would help us through your grace to redeem the time for the days are evil. And this gospel message needs to go forth through a people who believe your word. And I pray that you would make us that people in Jesus' name. Amen.